I was planning on uh, teaching a, a message on marriage this morning, but uh, I, I just was so moved uh, there at the end of worship. I want to talk to you about the rule and the reign of God. Okay? And so I have no notes. I just have this, okay? So we'll just go with this this morning, all right? Um, so why don't we pray? Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Lord, I pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, as we sang this morning that you reign, you reign. As the banner behind me says, Christ is king. Uh, Lord, through our time in your word, help us to see that that is the truth. And that you are ruling and reigning. And that you have called us to live as a part of your kingdom. And to be used by you to advance your rule and your reign. Your kingdom on the earth. Lord, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, you would not have taught us to pray that if that wasn't your heart and your desire, if that wasn't your intention. So, Lord, we know with certainty that your purpose is for your kingdom, your rule and your reign to advance on the earth. Through our time in your word this morning, we pray that that would happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you go with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm or even passage of Scripture. In the New Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament or alluded to over 30 times. Over 30 times this psalm is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, which has led certain Bible commentators to say that this is God's favorite Bible verse because it's the one that he quotes over and over. Again, Jesus himself quotes this passage. I want to read it to you this morning. I want to highlight some things from it. And we'll probably be bouncing around uh, quite a bit this morning. So keep your Bibles handy. But it says, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I'm not going to unpack everything in this this morning. There's, there's a whole lot going on. And if you're hearing some of this for the first time and you're saying that I have no idea what this is talking about, that's okay. Um, I, I, that's, that's, that's just fine. But I want to draw your attention especially to the first couple of verses where it says, the Lord says to my Lord. If you look up above that, it should say a psalm of David. A psalm of David. So David is, is writing this song. And, and as we know, that the scriptures are breathed out by God. That, that God inspired these words to be written. And so yes, it is through the pen of David that these words are written, but these are not the words of David. These, because they're inspired by God, are the words of God. And as we, you study the Old Testament, what you find over and over again is that God made promises of things that would happen, and then they happened in history. And it proves to us that, again, these are not the words of men. Because the words of men fail. The predictions of men uh, are erroneous. If the predictions of men were true, we would all be underwater right now. Right? By 2023, the whole globe is going to be submerged. Right? And then there was the whole other group of scientists that said we would be burned to a crisp by now. Yet here we are. Because the words of men fail, but the words of God do not. And the, the, the predictions, the prophecies, hundreds of them from the Old Testament we see have, have come to pass and have proven true, proving to us that these are not simply the words of men, but they are the words of God. Now, writing through David, God communicates this message and as you look at this first line, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. I want to draw your attention to the fact that in your Bibles, the first Lord is in all caps. Is your Bible that way? It's all caps. That word Lord, L-O-R-D, with all in, in capitals. And then the second Lord is not. And what this is telling us is that it's helping us to understand what the message is that's being communicated. You see, this passage, the Old Testament, was not written in English. In the English language wasn't going to be invented for thousands of years. The language that this was written in was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, what this says is, Yahweh says to my Adonai, this Yahweh, this, what, what's Yahweh? Yahweh is the covenant name for God. It's, it's God's covenant name that he gave to his covenant people. When he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and he said, I am that I am. That is that name Yahweh. And so where it has that covenant name, 
the English translators, out of respect for the historic tradition to not take the Lord's name in vain, put it there, Lord, in all capitals. So anytime you see Lord in all capitals, it's telling you that it's talking about the one true God. We sang about that this morning. God in three persons. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh. And it says that Yahweh speaks to my Lord. My Adonai. That word Adonai, it does mean Lord. And when Jesus quotes from this psalm and when uh, the, the New Testament writers quote from this psalm, they identify the, the Lord as Jesus Christ. The, the second Lord, the Adonai. And so this, what's happening here is a, a communication that's happening between the Father and the Son. This, this inter- Godhead communication where we see in John chapter 1 that the Father and the Son exist for all time and all space in eternity past, face to face, loving each other in, in perfect harmony and perfect communion. And here it tells us some of the communication that happened in eternity past between the Father and the Son. And that communication is this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where is Jesus today? Jesus today is at the right hand of the Father. We, we know that the, the, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, entered into human history, born of the virgin, lived a life without sin, died on the cross in our place, in the place of sinners, so that all who would trust in him and in his sacrifice for sin and who would repent of their sin and to trust in Christ would receive forgiveness of sin. We would receive his righteousness on our behalf. That Jesus died in the place of sinners. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's law, of God's standard. We've all transgressed God's commandments. The wages of sin is death. We sing about God being holy today. The holiness of God demands justice. But God is also a God of love. God loves us. So how can, a, how, can a just, how can a holy God be a loving God? How can a God who demands justice also bestow love? It's at the cross of Christ. It's at the cross where God's love and God's justice meet. Where God himself takes on the penalty for his people that he loves. So that God can receive the justice that is due and that upon the Son, the Father pours out the wrath that we earned. Jesus takes our penalty on his body on the tree. Jesus went to the cross willingly because he loves us. 
They took Jesus off of that cross and they laid him in a tomb. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Go with me. Say here in in Psalm 110. I'm going to use all 10 of your fingers this morning as we start going around. Uh, Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the first message that is preached. The first gospel message. After Jesus rose from the dead. Actually, I want to show you something in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus, he presented himself alive to them, that's his apostles, to the eleven. Alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days, during 40 days, and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God, his rule and his reign. And here he tells them, don't depart from Jerusalem. Stay there until I pour out my spirit upon you. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when I pour out my spirit, my power, my presence upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Stay here in Acts chapter 1 and go back with me to... Matthew 28. I told you I was going to use all 10 of your fingers. Matthew 28 is a parallel account of what Jesus is telling them here. After Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in victory, he rose in power, he rose crushing the head of the serpent that we read about. In Genesis chapter 3. That when Jesus rose on that third day, Satan was defeated. Let me tell you you this way. Satan is defeated. Satan has been defeated. The the decisive victory. the, the, The victorious blow against the kingdom of darkness was struck at the cross and the resurrection. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want to draw your attention to the word all. 
as preachers are fond of saying, all means all. All means all. What does all mean? All means all. Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns everything. It all belongs to him. He's the creator. We rebelled against him through sin, humanity, but he entered into humanity as Jesus of Nazareth and defeated Satan and took back, took back what we handed over to him in the garden. He took back dominion and authority. And so that Jesus can here now say, I have taken it back. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want to draw your attention to in heaven. I, I don't think many people would argue with that. Many people would say, yes, of course, Jesus, he's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority in heaven. Jesus rules in heaven. And when I accept Jesus into my life, Jesus rules in my heart. That's where Jesus rules, in heaven and in my heart. And yes, amen. Yes, he does. But not only does he rule in heaven, and not only should he rule our hearts, Jesus says this very controversial statement here, that all authority in heaven and on earth, on earth, has been given to him. Now some would look at this and they would say, yes, of course, one day when Jesus returns, one day at the end of human history, Jesus is going to return and He'll establish his kingdom, and yes, all authority in heaven and on earth will be his. But that's where I have to draw your attention here to the tense that Jesus says. He doesn't say all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me someday in the future. No, but what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Has been. So, so Jesus, now presently, if, if, if Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth 2,000 years ago, th does it not stand to reason that he still has all authority in heaven and on earth? Are, are we to believe that, that somehow in the last 50 years or 100 years or 500 years that, that Satan has mounted a successful rebellion against Christ and his kingdom and, and taken back from Christ what he purchased at the cross? Well, no, of course not. So Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Amen? Amen. Now, th this is not my crazy idea. This is not my... You know, I'm just reading what Jesus says. Do, do you see that? Do you see that I'm not inserting things in here? That, that it's just the words of Christ. And so in verse 19, he says, go what? Well, we skipped a, po we skipped a word. Go what and make disciples? Go therefore, or therefore go. Go therefore and make disciples. You see, a lot of times we try to get about the Great Commission doing what he, he, he goes on to say. Let's, let's read what he goes on to say. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. A lot of times we, we get about, okay, let's go do this. Let's, you know, on, on your market set, go. Let's go do the Great Commission. Let's go disciple the nations. But Jesus doesn't just say, go disciple the nations. He says, go therefore and disciple the nations. There's a big difference in going and trying to disciple the nations and going therefore because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's a big difference. There's a big difference when you have the power of heaven standing behind you, all power standing behind you when you go to disciple the nations. You see, the church has forgotten that Christ is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. We've believed the propaganda campaign by our idolatrous, statist government that they have all authority. The government does not have all authority in heaven and on earth. Christ does. Now, the government does have some authority, but the authority that the government has is the authority that Christ has given it. Do you see that? So when, when the government, hear this, when the government starts to exercise authority that has not been given to it by Christ, that is called tyranny. That's tyranny. We live under a tyrannical state because it is assuming authority that does not belong to it. It's assuming the authority that belongs to Christ. I don't have time to go into a, a Romans 13 exposition on what the, the boundaries are of the state's authority. But let me just summarize it for you. The state's job, the role of the government, is to reward good and punish evil. That's their job. And they've been given the power of the sword to do so. To be coercive in rewarding good and punishing evil. This means that whatever the state gets involved in is coercion. Which means that, oh, which means the state shouldn't be involved in health care. Because whatever they get involved in, by its very nature, becomes coercive. I know I've that was a, I, I don't have time to follow that rabbit trail all the way down. The, the state doesn't have all authority. Christ has all authority. The state has some authority. And where the state rightfully has authority, we are called to submit to that authority. But when the state prescribes us do things that contradict the word of Christ, who has all authority, we say we must obey God rather than men. That's what the apostles did. And they, they had the boldness to say that because they knew that the one that they were obeying was the one who had all authority in heaven and on earth. They understood this. They believed this. They believed that the, the one who told them this had defeated even death itself. And so they knew that whatever you want to do to us, whatever 
injustice, whatever tyranny you want to, to wage upon us, even taking our own lives, we're obeying the one who has defeated death. So take our lives and we just go to the presence of Jesus. So there's no fear in death. Because if you fear God, you are set free from the fear of man. If you truly fear God and, and respect Him and honor Him and, and obey Him and are in awe of Him, you are totally set free of the fear of everybody else. We are in fear of everybody else and everything else because we don't fear God. Because we don't believe all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Remember what set me off on this path this morning was that song we sang. Our God reigns. When we sing that song, we're saying that he reigns and only he reigns. Only he reigns. And he has commissioned his people to go out and to spread his kingdom over all the earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Disciples are followers of a few handfuls of people, of a few pockets here and there scattered around. No, he says make disciples of all nations. Nations are to be discipled. Nations. That is the scope of the work of the church. That's us. Our job. Disciple nations. And how do we do that? Well, he says, disciple the nations by baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's proclaiming the gospel so that they can receive the gospel. That they can receive Christ through faith, evidenced by baptism... And then he says, after they are baptized, teach them to observe what? All that I have commanded. Teach them my word. Teach them to observe. That's to obey my word. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. His presence, his power is with us. Now go back with me to Acts chapter 1. Again, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Christ is returning. He will return. And when he returns, we will all stand before him. That day is called Judgment Day. Judgment Day isn't just the name of Terminator 2. 
Judgment Day is the day when Christ returns. And we will all stand before Christ. And we will all be found either clothed in his righteousness or we will be found clothed in our righteousness, which is filthy rags. But Christ is returning. But until he returns, we're not supposed to stand around looking up into heaven. When is he coming back? Jesus, come back. This world is getting so bad. Get us out of here. No, the angels come and says, why are you standing around looking into heaven? He just told you. You you have a job to do. You're to be witnesses until his return. It's put another way that we're to occupy until he comes. And when he pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to preach to the crowds that have gathered. And I want to start in verse 29 of his sermon. I'd love to do the whole thing, but we all want to eat lunch at some point, so... Amen. Thank you. (laughs) He, He quotes from Psalm 16... In verses 25 through 28. And then in verse 29, he explains the quote that he read. So Acts 2, 29. Peter saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, who, who wrote Psalm 16. He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that is to David, that he, that is God, would set one of his, that is David's, descendants on his throne. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades or to hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus' body did not decay. He, He didn't stay in the grave long enough to decay. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven. But he himself says. And here he quotes Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Christ's resurrection is tied to his ascension. He rose from the grave and he is seated on high. 
We, we talk a lot about the resurrection. I don't think we focus enough upon his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Where from there, enthroned in heaven, seated on David's throne that was promised. Where is David's throne? This is where people get confused. They say, well, David's throne has to be in Jerusalem. No, David's throne is where the son of David is enthroned, which is in heaven over all creation. Heaven is not a downgrade from Jerusalem. Heaven is an upgrade. The, the, the throne room of heaven over all creation is where Christ sits now. And he must reign, it says. Sit at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So yes, Christ is returning. There is no doubt. But until he returns, God is making every enemy of Christ the footstool for his feet. That is what is happening in history. That is what the church understood in the first century. That is why when you get to Acts chapter 17, after they've been going out and, and Paul and his missionaries and, and the church in Jerusalem has been sending people out and, and the church in Antioch has been sending out missionaries, doing the Great Commission, discipling the nations, that the accusation against Paul and his missionary team is these men who turned the world upside down. They began to turn the world, the, the world system, Upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the, the message that they say they are preaching is that there is another king, Jesus. That's the message. That's the gospel. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not king. Christ is king. There is another king. There is a king above all kings. There is another Lord, a Lord who is above all Lord, all lords, who calls all men everywhere, from the highest of the highest to, to the lowest of the lowest, to repent and to turn to Christ. The God, it says, in times past, what was patient with sin, but now, because Christ has come and paid the price for sin. The message of the gospel is to repent of sin and to believe upon Christ, the Son of God, who rules and who reigns. These men who, who turned the world upside down, they turned the world upside down because they believed what Jesus said, that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. Go with me to... 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul here is teaching the church in Corinth. 
about the last day when Christ returns and the glorious hope that we have for those of us who are in Christ of the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about when Christ returns that those who have died in Christ that we will be raised just like Christ was raised. That, that he is the first fruits of the, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. There are some in Corinth who don't believe in the resurrection, who have, they're confused about all of this. And so I'm glad they were confused so that Paul could write these words and be inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we have them for us today. In verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, so he's making the argument that our future resurrection is based on Christ's past resurrection. But he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is how central the resurrection and ascension are to the Christian faith. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's nothing here. There's no Christianity. There's no Christian faith. Why? Because if Jesus is dead, he can't forgive anybody. He can't forgive, he can't heal, he can't set free, he can't deliver, he can't restore, he can't redeem, he can't certainly raise you. So he says, look, if there's no resurrection and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And that those who have passed away, fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ is returning, yes, absolutely. 100% Jesus will return. But he must reign, Paul says, in heaven. He must reign. Until he has made every enemy a footstool for his feet. And so what is God doing in the world today? He is putting every enemy of Christ under Christ's feet. That is what's happening in human history. As we survey the landscape, do we see that that is what's happening today? I mean, sometimes it really looks kind of bleak out there. Oh, let's be honest. Christ has been given all authority. 
He has been given head over all things to the church, his body. But if his body, the church, doesn't understand what they're supposed to do, if his body, the church, doesn't understand that they're to advance the kingdom of God, if his body, the church, thinks we're just supposed to retreat and, and just hold on and, and just hang on to what little pieces of whatever we have left until Jesus can come and get us out of here. Then as the light retreats, guess what we call forth? We call forth the darkness. We call forth the darkness. Why is darkness spreading through our culture? Because God's people are not shining the light. That's the only reason why. Because, and why aren't God's people shining the light? Because they don't understand that Christ reigns. They don't understand that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, they don't understand that his body has the authority to go and to proclaim the crown rights of Jesus in every area, in every square inch of all creation. That is what you and I are called to do. To spread the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel of Christ, which is Christ reigns. Christ is king. If, if we're just simply trying to hold on until Jesus comes back, the world's just going to get darker and darker and darker. We were never designed, the church was never designed to retreat. The church is, a, is an army to march forward. You, you don't mobilize an army to go out and to make compromises. You don't arm and equip a spiritual force, a spiritual army. Again, I have to say, these spiritual battles, I'm not talking about taking up physical arms. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. If you're coming on Sunday nights, you're hearing that message, right? Okay, but, but we, the, the Lord has not mobilized and forming and shaping the church and giving us the word, which is the sword of the spirit, and sending us into the world to advance his kingdom if he doesn't expect his church to take territory for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? The rock is the confession that Peter made. What did Peter confess? When, when asked the question, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? That's an important question. That's an important question the church needs to understand and wrestle with today. Who is Jesus? Is he just a little baby born in the manger? Is he just the, the suffering savior on the cross? Or is he the one that died and rose again, conquering Satan, ascended to the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth? And that he will reign from there until all of his enemies have been made his footstool. Is that who Christ is? Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. Peter speaks up with his bold confession and he declares, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus says, upon that confession, upon that rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the words of Christ. That the gates of hell will not prevail. Gates 
as you may be aware of or, or may not know, Jesus is talking in terms of when he was alive in his day and age, when for protection a city would be surrounded by walls and that gates were how you went in and got out. And gates were a defensive force. Gates are defensive, not offensive. Gates are meant to defend against incoming attacks. What this means is that when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it says that the church is an advancing force. That we are meant to go and take what the enemy has unlawfully claimed as his own. That we are to go in the name of Christ, the name above every name, and declare that Christ is king. And that everything else that would exalt itself against the name of Christ must come down. And those gates of hell, those strongholds that the enemy has had, when the church advances in the power of the Spirit and in the power of the one who died and rose again, the gates of hell cannot prevail. And so how can Satan, what's his strategy? His strategy is unbelief. His strategy is deception. His strategy is to convince you that the world is going to hell. The strategy is to convince you that he's the one who runs things down here. Well, listen, he's not. Because Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. And the only way that his gates will hold is if the church refuses to advance. That's the only way. The only way darkness can stay dark is if the light isn't turned on. We are the light of the world. But we are not taking the gospel. We are not preaching the crown rights of Christ over all creation. Starting with ourselves personally. Starting with our own families. Starting at the places we work. The places that we can have influence. And that God's people should seek to find ways to walk into open doors to preach and to proclaim Christ is King. Our God reigns. Forever his kingdom reigns. You see, I do not believe that the church will lose in history. I don't believe that. I don't believe we're the biggest losers. I believe Jesus actually did something there on that cross. I believe Satan was actually defeated. Can I show you one more scripture? I know I've shown you a lot today. I'm, I'm mostly focusing in on the words of Christ, but let's look at uh, John. Flip back with me to John. This will be our last scripture today. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is right before Jesus heads to the cross. He's already entered into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. John 13 through 17 is the Last Supper. 
the last night of Jesus' life. John 12 is, is right before the Last Supper. Look at what Jesus says as he's preparing to head to the cross. John 12, verse 31. What is the, what is the first word of John 12, 31? Now. Now. When Jesus is saying this, it's 2,000 years ago. Right? And Jesus is saying, now as I'm heading to the cross, now is the judgment of this world, that this world system under the control of Satan, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now. And when I am lifted up from the earth, that's speaking of the kind of death he would die, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus heading to the cross says, I'm taking care of, the, I'm taking care of Satan now. I'm taking care of him now. I'm going to defeat him now. When we say the enemy has been defeated, we mean it. He has been defeated. And the church is to go and to take back the territory that belongs to Christ. That's what the church is to do. And we're to do that everywhere. The whole earth. The, 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 <laughs> the Christian faith is a faith of global conquest. Not through the power of the natural sword. Not through armies, natural armies. But it is a spiritual conquest. It is through the power of the sword of the Spirit. And we can do so with confidence because the words of our Lord are abundantly clear. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, be cast down, be defeated. You see, for us to believe that Satan is victorious and that he will win, we have to say Jesus was lying or he didn't know what he was talking about. Or he just got caught up in the moment and said some stuff kind of, you know, hyperbolically. No. Satan has been defeated. He has been cast out. His head has been crushed. And the only way he maintains his hold anywhere is because God's people just don't know. The prophet says, my people die for a lack of knowledge. We just don't know. We don't know what Christ purchased. We don't know what his death, resurrection, and ascension accomplished. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We've been taught, we just got to hold, you know, Jesus saved me. I got my ticket punched to heaven. I just got to hold on to this golden ticket until I die or he pulls me out of here. That's it. That's my life. No, 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 no. We're to press the kingdom of God as far as the sun shines. Every place the sun touches. And the, the, the prophets tell us the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
This is where things are going. The enemy wants us to not believe that. The enemy wants us to believe that he is in control. The enemy wants us to live in fear and believe that he's going to take over everything. And, you know, they're going to... He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Do you see... Listen to me. I'm closing my Bible. That's, that's my first. I'm trying to make progress. The enemy's position is so weak that they have to propagandize it 24-7 or the whole thing falls to dust. The enemy's position is so weak that just a few people saying, I'm not going to drink Bud Light anymore, sends the whole thing up in flames. The enemy's position is so weak because it's based on lies, because it's based on a foundation that is sinking sand, that if we just simply walk up to it in the authority of Christ and say, Jesus is king, do whatever you want to me, but Jesus is king, the whole thing crumbles. But we don't believe, number one, that we can do that. We don't believe, number two, that we should do that. And number three, we're not even doing that in our own lives. And so we are morally compromised. Christ is king. We're to take his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Our God reigns. That's not just some little song. It's the reality of the whole universe. Christ reigns. And every enemy will be made the footstool for his feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do live in interesting times. But Lord, what your world needs is for your people who are called by your name to get about the business of your kingdom. God, we repent of our sins. They are many. We repent of our indifference. We repent of our blindness. We repent of our silence. We repent of our indifference. We repent of our unbelief. Lord, you have given us your word and your spirit. And you have promised that you are the one who is building your church. Help us to believe your words. Help us to believe that there is no force in heaven, on earth, or in hell that can stand against your word. Help us to believe that the enemy has been cast out and defeated and that you are the one who is victorious and you are the one who is ruling and reigning and that you, through your body, us, your church, will subdue every enemy and that you will return, not for a church that has lost, but for a church who is victorious. A radiant bride without spot or wrinkle Purify us, perfect us, mold us into the force in the earth that you have called us to be. 
It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.